Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we are eager to hear you speak to us. Just as Peter said to Jesus, Lord, to whom else shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And so we pray, Father, that you would make known to us this gospel of eternal life and give us open hearts, understanding minds to receive your word, uh, which is for us this morning. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you'll please open your Bibles to our sermon text this morning. We're looking at Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, the first commandment. We'll just read uh, leading up to it uh, from 20, verse 1 through verse 3. So reading Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1 through 3. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. One of the first lessons that parents teach to their children from the youngest age, as soon as they are able to play with other children, is to share. We're in the midst of this, and I can tell you, it's not easy. It's a lesson that takes a long time to learn. We're constantly reminding our son, you need to share your toys with your brother, with your friends, with others, and it certainly doesn't help that the other kids his age are not very good sharers either. We all need to learn how to share. It's also important to know that there are some things that you don't share. For example, you generally don't share your toothbrush. You don't share confidential information. And more seriously, you don't share the sexual intimacy that is reserved to be between a husband and a wife. These things are not intended to be shared. They are meant to be exclusive. If there are some things that we humans do not share, then it should be no surprise that even God himself does the same. There are things that even he refuses to share. I remember that I'm talking here about the God of all grace and mercy, the God who has created all things and from whom every good and perfect gift comes. He is a God who gives, who shares abundantly with us. And yet he has also said, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols, Isaiah 42.8. God refuses to share his glory as the one true God with any other. He will not allow any rival, any false God, any idol to steal his place. And so he has given us The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That's what we're looking at this morning. We will consider this commandment by first asking, what does this first commandment mean? Then we'll consider, how do you keep this commandment? And then third, how does Jesus fulfill the first commandment? So first, this morning, what is the meaning of the first commandment? 
Before we look at it directly, we want to remember its setting, as we saw last time. Remember first the preface. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It is because the Lord set his people free that he then gave them this good law to be a blessing to them, to preserve them in their freedom. For we who live after the coming of Jesus Christ, the same is true for us to an even greater degree. Christ has set us free from bondage to sin, and then he calls us to die to ourselves, to follow after him and to keep God's law, which James calls the royal law of liberty, James 1.25. Now, as we want to understand the meaning of the first commandment, we can simply go word by word, phrase by phrase. It starts with the word you, you singular. God addresses you personally in each of the Ten Commandments. And perhaps this is an obvious observation, but you can't just blend into the crowd and let others keep this commandment for you. You must do this. Next we have the verb, you shall have no other gods. And this is the most general verb possible. There are other places in the Old Testament where you are commanded not to invoke, not to serve, not to worship, not to turn to, to sacrifice to, not to lay hold on, to fear, not even to speak the name of any other God. Now, these are more specific actions. But in the first commandment, we see the verb that concludes all those other things. You shall have no other God. You cannot even have them. You are to have nothing to do with them. Here we see that God demands exclusivity. He is to be your God, the Lord, and him alone. Then note the final words, before me. Translating the Hebrew, which means in my presence, or even more literally, in front of my face. Here you see how personal this commandment is. Of course, that's not to say that You can have another God as long as you hide it away secretly, away from God's face, because, of course, nothing is hidden from the Lord. If you take another God, if you trust another, if you worship another, that is in his face. And God will see there are no exceptions to the first commandment. You can have no other God. You can have no other before God, besides God. No other can come in front of his face, for the Lord must be in the first place, in your heart. Finally, we must consider the words, other gods. Does this imply that there are other gods? In a strict sense, in a real sense, no, absolutely not. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 45, 5. There is one and only one God, the Lord, the creator of all things, the triune God. That's in the real sense, the strict sense, and yet in another sense, there are many gods because man invents other gods. As John Calvin so famously said, the heart of man is a factory of idols, constantly churning out idols. Of course, all these other gods are false. Nothings, they are pretenders. God remains the one true God. Israel had received this commandment soon after being delivered out of Egypt. It was a land filled with false gods. And they were about to head into Canaan and be surrounded by a whole different pantheon of false deities. 
And they would be tempted to worship the various Baals, the Asherahs, Chemosh, and all the rest. But breaking the first commandment doesn't require that there be some formal religion with a name to God. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. I like the way Tim Keller puts it. A false god is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And so the first commandment is saying, don't let anything become a god in your heart. Let God, the only true God, and him alone reign in your heart with no rivals. Worship and love him alone. We notice that the, the, preface, the, the preface here at the outset, and I hope you recall from our sermon on the preface last week, that the Ten Commandments are a covenant document. As it says in Deuteronomy 4.13, he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And this, just like the covenant of marriage, it means that absolute exclusivity is required. In fact, God uses the language of, of marriage to describe his relationship with his people throughout the scriptures. As he says in Jeremiah 3:14, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. Or Isaiah 54:5, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And you're probably even more familiar with the imagery of the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, and you are members of the church, his bride. And what does this mean? It means that to have another God is to betray the Lord. It is to commit spiritual adultery. And as the Lord says in the second commandment, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He is jealous for your exclusive love as any husband ought to be. He is offended when you give your love to any other. This morning we're going to focus on how to keep the first commandment in the sense of what is positively required. Next week we'll focus on what the commandment forbids, all the ways you can break this commandment that you must avoid. And so we'll focus next week on this topic of idolatry. All the ways your heart can go astray in trusting other false gods. But this morning, I want to focus on what is required. And that brings us to our second question. How do you positively keep this first commandment? It's very obvious right on the surface that the great majority of the Ten Commandments are put in the negative. You shall not, you shall not. The first commandment included. But in order to keep them Something positive is required. In order to keep the first commandment, to have no other gods, you cannot have a merely neutral attitude toward the Lord. John Gerstner puts it beautifully. The fulfillment of this first commandment requires the love of God. How can we exclude all others from his presence unless we love him? If, on the other hand, if we do love him, what room will there be? for any other gods. You see this truth peeking through already in the second commandment, 
that you can't keep the commandments by inaction, by just not doing certain things. You must positively love God. And so it says in verse 6, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Love is required. And that's exactly what we see in perhaps the most well-known, most repeated verse in all of the law of Moses. The Shema repeated twice daily in the prayers by Orthodox Jews even to this day. And so, as we read earlier, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Here we have Moses' own interpretation of how you keep the first commandment. It's basically the first commandment taken out of the negative and put into the positive. The Lord had so loved his people that he delivered them out of slavery and then he calls them, now love me in return. And so you see the law isn't just a set of sterile rules to obey. It's not just a stuffy legal code for lawyers and bureaucrats to decipher, but rather it's a way of life for God's people to walk by. It's a way to channel the affections of the heart towards God. And it starts here with love. Consider the promise that the Lord makes in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This is the Old Testament description of the new birth, of true conversion, when the Lord works in the heart of a person so that he loves the Lord as he ought to. So this is how Moses says, you are positively to keep the first commandment. But then when you come to the New Testament, you see that Jesus has this very same interpretation as well. Here's what we read in Matthew chapter 22. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Here the Pharisees are trying to test Jesus to catch him in a trap. And in those days, they had numbered and categorized all the commandments of the law of Moses. They had come up with 613. And they would debate what is the most important. And so they asked Jesus, and here we have his answer. He goes right to Deuteronomy 6, 5, which he calls the first and great commandment. And when he gives his two great commandments here, he's not saying just toss out all the law and replace it with these two commandments. He's certainly not saying just let love be your guide. All you need is love. That's not what he's saying. He's saying these two come first and only by loving the Lord with all of your heart can you keep God's law. Only in this way can you keep the rest of the Ten Commandments. Now what does it mean? To love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Are these different parts of you that you need to use to love God with? 
In the Hebrew mind, the heart is the center of the being from which everything else flows. All your actions, all your thoughts, all your emotions. And the soul is simply another term that refers to who you are in your inner self. All that you are, your very life. Then when Jesus quotes this verse from Deuteronomy, he adds, your mind. But that's just a further way of emphasizing because the mind is another synonym, another way of saying your inner life. We also have then in the Deuteronomy passage, all your strength, everything you have to give. In other words, this is not saying to love God with four different parts of who you are, but rather love God with all that you are. And it's emphasizing this four times over. Love God with everything you have. All, 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 all. This is what it means to keep the first commandment. And Jesus says that all the law and all the prophets hang on this. On this love for God and love for neighbor. Now these two are so deeply intertwined as we read in John's first letter. He so clearly teaches You cannot love God and not also love your neighbor. The two go together. But in order to keep the commandments, you need to start here with the first. You need to start with love for God. That's because your motives are essential. As I was preparing for this sermon, I always like to listen to a few other sermons. And I heard a sermon from another preacher where he said, there may be a non-believer out there who can keep the fifth commandment. He honors his parents. Perhaps he keeps the sixth commandment. He doesn't murder. He keeps the seventh. He's faithful to his wife. The eighth, he doesn't steal. The ninth, he tells the truth. But the first, no non-believer. He keeps the first. For by definition, a non-believer, he does not love God. That's partly true. But even this understanding of keeping the other commandments It's quite superficial. For God requires not just an external observance, but he looks at the heart. He looks at the motives of the heart. Why are you doing what you're doing? If you keep a particular commandment just to avoid punishment, or perhaps to get a reward either from God or from others, or perhaps you're doing so out of pride to make yourself look good to others, In all this, you are not serving God, but rather serving self. You are making an idol of yourself. And so certainly you cannot keep one commandment in the service of breaking another in the service of idolatry. Breaking the first commandment. The only true way to keep any commandment is to do so out of a heartfelt love for God, out of a desire to please the one whom your heart loves and who first loved you. And so this commandment is rightly the first. It is the key to truly keeping all the rest. Now, if you truly, if you understand that to keep the first commandment, you must love God with all that you are, you still might be wondering practically how. How do I do this? How do I grow in this love for God? Well, if you would love the Lord, you must first know the Lord. The Lord is lovely. The Lord is wonderful. He is beautiful. And so the more you know him, the more you will love him. You must know him more and more so that you might cultivate this heart of love for him 
And, of course, the Lord has spoken. He has revealed himself in his word. And so if you would know him, that is where you must go. Go to the word that is written. Sit under the word preached, proclaimed. And you will hear the the Lord speak to you. And you will get to know him more. The book of the Psalms is a rich source for growing in your relationship with him. Getting to know him so that you might love him more. And it opens in this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. These verses speak of meditating on the law of the Lord. Of course, you know that includes not just rules and regulations, but all that Moses wrote. The record of all that the Lord did to faithfully keep his promises to set his people free. But do let me also put in a plug. For even the law itself, even the commandments, even those parts are rich. For God reveals himself there. His holy and righteous character is revealed in the details even of those rules and regulations. You get to know what God is like through the commands he gives. So let the law, let all of God's word be your daily meditation. Let it be your delight that you might know him, that you might behold and bask in his beauty, that you might love him more. And let this be your prayer. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Psalm 25, 4. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Hosea 6, 3. Are you pressing on to know the Lord more? This was Paul's driving passion. We often think of his passion as as a passion for missions to get the gospel out to the nations. But behind this was an even deeper drive, his own hunger to know the Lord. As he writes, But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. For Paul, this was his baseline. This was his foundation before he told anyone else he first needed to know the Lord himself. And this was worth more to him than anything else, to know his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the way that Jesus himself spoke of the precious value of this knowledge. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, John seventeen three. If you would keep the first commandment, if you would love God, you must know him. And so give yourself to this pursuit after knowing the Lord. But second, you must fear the Lord. Now, this actually goes along very closely with, in scripture, it goes along with knowing the Lord. As it says in Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. But what does it mean to fear the Lord? 
Last time we read of how before the Lord delivered the Ten Commandments, he descended on Mount Sinai in great glory. Here we see the people's response. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. We see here they were overcome with fear. And it was a fear that the Lord would actually kill them. His people whom he loved. So Moses needed to comfort them. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. That you may not sin. They didn't need to fear punishment because God hadn't come to threaten them. But they did need to see in this fire and thunder and smoke a picture of his holiness. And this is something you all need to come to grips with, that you might know the Lord, that you might fear the Lord rightly. You must know the holiness of God. And this is what Isaiah came to understand when he beheld the Lord in Isaiah 6. It's what we read. In the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah beheld the Lord in all his glory and all his holiness, he was undone. But that's not the end of the story. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So then what is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord, as it is taught in Scripture, is to recognize that God is Almighty, He is all-powerful. He is transcendent. And as, I, as Israel saw at Mount Sinai, our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The fear of the Lord is to know His holiness, His righteousness, to know that He cannot abide any sin in His presence. But this must then drive you to recognize that because you are sinful, there must be grace, there must be mercy, there must be redemption. And praise the Lord, all these things are found in Jesus Christ. That burning coal that cleansed Isaiah was pointing forward to the cross. And so the fear of the Lord is ultimately not a fear of judgment. It is not a fear of punishment, but a right reverence and awe of your God. Once you behold the Lord and all that he is, you can never treat God lightly or flippantly. Yes, you must fear the Lord. That is no hindrance to a warm-hearted love for God. 
In fact, a right fear for the Lord is necessary for a true love of God himself. So how do you keep the first commandment? How do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? You must know the Lord. You must fear the Lord. And next, you must understand how Christ has fulfilled the first commandment. So that's our next point this morning. How does Christ fulfill the first commandment? First of all, we see that where Adam failed, where all men have failed, Christ perfectly keeps the first commandment. He loved God, his Father, with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength for all of his days. We see that when he was tempted at this very point in Matthew 4, he passed the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Jesus passed the test with flying colors. That wasn't all. The greatest test came later. It was when he was on the cross, when he felt the weight of all our sins and the wrath of God that they deserve crashed down upon him. And the father's face was turned away from him so that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know even then he continued to love his father with all that he was. He continued to do all his father's will. He continued to keep the first commandment perfectly even there on the cross. What love is this? Oh, what a savior. You need to know that Jesus fulfilled the first commandment for you because this is how he then fills you with the love that you need to love him, your Lord. In Luke chapter seven, we read the story of how Jesus was having a dinner at the house of Simon, the Pharisee. And a woman came in and as Jesus was reclining at table, she began to wet Jesus's feet with her tears to wipe them with her hair, to kiss them, to anoint them with precious, fragrant oil. But Simon the Pharisee objected, saying, don't you know who this woman is, that she is a sinner? Jesus responded with a parable. A moneylender forgives two debtors, one 500 denarii and the other only 50. Who will love him more? No one forgiven the greater debt. This woman loved Jesus. She demonstrated it with her actions because she knew, as Jesus said, that her sins, which are many, are forgiven, Luke 7.47. This is the key to loving God, recognizing Christ's love for you in the gospel, his grace toward you and rescuing you from all your sins. Your sins, believer, are many. The penalty for them is great, but Christ has borne it all for you on the cross. If you are trusting in him, if you have received this grace from him, then how can you not love him in response? And the more you meditate on the gospel, the more you grasp his love for you, 
the more your love for him in return will grow. And so this brings us back around to our original call, to love the Lord your God with everything you are, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Do so because of all that you have received in Christ. Finally, I want to encourage you that this love for God will only grow, it will only flourish as you spend time in communion with your Lord. This goes hand in hand with the earlier point that you need to know him. So also you need to spend time with him. Of course, the Lord is always and everywhere present as Christ says, I am with you always. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And yet his abiding presence with you is not the same as spending focused quality time with the Lord in worship in prayer. You cannot love someone whom you don't spend time with. And so you must enjoy fellowship with your Lord in worship. You must delight in spending time with him in prayer. As David says, as he prays in Psalm 63, we sang it earlier, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. In this way, you will know the promise of Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Of course, as you delight yourself in the Lord, the desires of your heart will become more and more aligned with his own, and the chief desire of your heart will become, it will be for the Lord himself. For what is the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So, brothers and sisters, how do you keep the first commandment? You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let that love push out all lesser loves, all lesser things. And you cultivate that love by knowing the Lord, fearing the Lord, most of all knowing Christ and what he has done for you, his mercy and his grace, and not just his gifts, but the beauty of who he is. And as you behold him, as you worship him and commune with him, he will fill you with his love. And this will become the cry of your heart. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you alone are worthy of all worship, of all glory, of all the love we have to give. We know we only love you because you have first loved us. Help us to grasp the magnitude of your love for us in Christ. And may we, being rooted and grounded in love, have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. May that knowledge of his love so overflow our hearts with love for you through Jesus Christ, your son. May it so fill us that there is no room left 
for any idol, for any lesser love. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.